good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. And so I want to begin our studies tonight in Matthew chapter 2. And let's read together from the verse number 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, In thy Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you find him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. And when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, and they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, if tonight we're studying the second petition, Thy kingdom come, you may well ask the question, why the story of the wise men? Well, it's a, a very important story in the unfolding of the revelation of God's kingdom. Before we come to think about the prayer for the kingdom to come, we must give some thought to the subject of the kingdom itself. And note that when Christ encourages us to pray to the Father, we are to pray for the Father's kingdom to come. And you go back to the Old Testament book of the Psalms and the Psalm 145, you have the description of the Lord, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. And then later on it says, they shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Jehovah's kingdom in Psalm 145, 13 is said to be an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. The Lord Jehovah is gracious and he has a kingdom that is described as an everlasting kingdom and a dominion enduring throughout all generations. But as this kingdom is progressively revealed in the scriptures, we see it centering upon the coming of a king. So you have in the verse number two of this chapter in Matthew's gospel that the wise men come and they say, where is he? that is born king of the Jews. What I want to do tonight, and at least try to do tonight, is to really scan through the scriptures 
I want to survey the subject of the king and his kingdom. You might call it an, an overview of the biblical theology of the doctrine of the kingdom. And so before we get to the prayer itself, you've got to understand, well, what is the nature of the kingdom of the Lord? But to begin with, we should understand that the king is conceived according to promise. Ever ask the question, how did the wise men know that a king was coming? It's a very obvious question, yet sometimes it's a question we don't think about asking. His star appears, and it seems to me that they were expecting the coming of a king who was the king of the Jews. That's what got Herod so mad. He's the king of the Jews. And who is this? He is this one who is coming to, in his mind, usurp his throne. How did the wise men from the east know that a king was coming? Well, one school of thought goes like this. The wise men, literally the magi, are referred to elsewhere in scripture. They're referred to, for example, in Daniel chapter 2. And the verse number two, then the king commanded to call the magicians, magi. There's a calling of the king, Nebuchadnezzar, of his magicians, his wise men, his magi. They they come together and they're coming to contemplate the dream. We know as Daniel is given the gift of interpretation, he then interprets that dream. And as he interprets the dream in the presence of the magi, We then have the words in verse 44 of Daniel 2. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. And so it would seem very possible, although except we we cannot say with absolute certainty, but it would seem very possible that there was the passing down of this prophecy amongst the wise men of the East. A story that a Jewish man had given a prediction of a kingdom set up by the God of heaven. A kingdom which shall not be destroyed. Daniel, of course, in chapter 7 of Daniel's book and the verse number 13 describes a kingdom in this way. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. It was that Son of Man imagery that the Jewish leaders took so personally whenever Christ claimed To be that very son of man. So I don't think we're going far beyond the realms of possibility when we say that the wise men in the east had a tradition, had a heritage that drew back to the times of Daniel when there was the prediction of an everlasting kingdom. This kingdom, of course, was not first predicted in the time of Daniel. That kingdom goes back to the time of David. David had a desire, Second Samuel chapter uh, 7, he had a desire to build a house for God. And God says, you will not build my house. You've been a, a man of war. Your son, the man of peace, will build a house. But 
I'm going to build you a house. You're going to have an everlasting kingdom. And so there you have, you turn to uh, the Psalm 89, please. And the Psalm 89, you will see that that everlasting kingdom is indeed a kingdom that comes in the, uh, the person of the son of David. Uh, Psalm 89, as Ethan applies the, uh, the predictions given to David, in verse number 3 he says, I have made a covenant with my chosen, I have sworn unto David my servant, thy seed will I establish forever, and build up thy throne to all generations. You see the overlap here? There you have the Psalm 145. You have the kingdom of Jehovah being a, a kingdom that has no limitations, a kingdom that is to all generations. We saw in Daniel's prediction of this kingdom, this kingdom is, again, without generations, an everlasting kingdom. And here we see in the Psalm 89 that this, this kingdom is centering upon a king. The king that is the son of David. In verse number 29 of the Psalm 89 his seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. With verse number 36, his seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. Here's a prediction of an ongoing everlasting kingdom. And so the wise men, it would seem, are understanding that there's a, a promise of a king coming. Now, how much they understood and how much they understood of the rest of the Old Testament, we can't be certain. But we know that God is promising an everlasting kingdom through the person of an everlasting king. A king. Arising in the side, the seed of David. A king that will sit upon the throne of David and do so forevermore. And as you examine this concept, this biblical language of the kingdom, you see that the kingdom consistently centers upon the identity of the king. In Psalm 2, we sang Psalm 2, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Psalm 2 that is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 5, is referring to the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here described as the prediction of a, of a coming king. Or the Psalm 45, also quoted in Hebrews chapter 1 and the verse number 6. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Or, of course, the Psalm 110 that we've seen in recent studies in our, in our Sunday evening meetings. That the promise of the king is the promise of one who comes as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He who is priest and king. He rules with a rod. So Daniel's everlasting kingdom is the kingdom of God's Messiah, the kingdom of God's Christ and Lord. And isn't that what Isaiah predicted? When you turn to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, and I think when you see all of these things, you understand why the gospel writers, they record the importance of Christ coming as the king. Isaiah chapter 9, and the verse number 6, For unto us a child is born, Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so I think in that very 
a quick overview of, of Old Testament scriptures, you, you see there is this coming together of these prophetic scriptures. So that when you turn back to Matthew chapter 2, what do you see is happening in Matthew chapter 2? When the wise men come, and however they got the information from, let's just leave that aside for now. When they come, they ask to know where is the king of the Jews? Where has he been born? And what is significant is when Herod calls together chief priests, he does not wonder who is this king that these men are thinking about. Rather, he asks them where Christ should be born. Not the king, but Christ. And so you see, even in the darkness of apostate Judaism, there was the understanding from the Old Testament scriptures that the promised Messiah, the Redeemer, was going to come as king. And such is the importance of that theme in the Old Testament that we see that without any qualification, Matthew simply replaces king of the Jews with Christ from the mouth of Herod the king. And so when the angels would sing in Luke chapter 2, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a saviour which is Christ the Lord. There is the seal upon the birth of Christ that the babe that is born is the king that was long promised. And so when, you, when you're going through in your mind this Lord's Prayer, and you've made your way through our Father, and you've gone through in your mind, hallowed be thy name, you then, you then come to the issue of the kingdom, and you think, well, what is this kingdom all about? Well, the kingdom is a kingdom that centers upon the coming of Jesus Christ, who came as the messianic king, which ordinarily then leads to the second issue, and that is that the king conquers in the power of God. So if we, if we keep Matthew 2 in mind, a king has been born, and a king's been born in fulfillment of prophecy. Well, what happens next in Matthew's gospel? Well, turn to Matthew chapter 4. Because as you read all the gospels, uh, and we're going to restrict our minds uh, to Matthew here because we're in Matthew chapter 2, but when you, when you work your way through all the gospels, you see this repeated emphasis on the truth that Jesus is a king. Matthew chapter 4 and the verse number 23, as Matthew describes the beginning of our Lord's ministry, and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Kingdom was the central thought in his preaching. It was the good news of the kingdom. In Mark's language, the kingdom of God is at hand. The king has come. Therefore, the kingdom is coming to its fulfillment. All of the predictions, all of the prophecies of an indestructible, everlasting kingdom. They're all coming true now. And Christ says, you better be ready. Repent and believe the gospel. So the kingdom is at the, the very center of the biblical revelation in the gospels regarding the nature of Christ as king. Yet, when you go over to Matthew chapter 12... Turn there, please. You will see that this kingdom is a kingdom that will involve conflict. And so I've said to you, this king conquers in the power of God. This is a kingdom that is going to be established through the means of warfare. It is a kingdom that is established through the conquering of the king. 
The king does not simply come and assume, assume the throne, but rather the king comes and earns and gains the throne by conquering. You have in the language of Matthew 12 and the verse number 24 and following, you have again language of a kingdom. The Pharisees are embittered against the son of David. The people are going, is not this the son of David? Verse 23, is not this the promised coming king? And the Pharisees say, no, this cannot be the king. Because he's casting out devils by Beelzebub, of the prince of the devils. And Jesus understands their thoughts and says in verse 25, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? You see what the Lord is saying here? The kingdom that Christ is going to come and institute on this earth is a kingdom that is going to be opposed and against the kingdom of Satan. So then verse 28 says, but if I cast out devils by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. Christ has come to, to conquer and to enter the strong man's house and spoil his goods. It's a kingdom that's going to come through conquering. It's going to come through conflict. And so as you work your way through the gospel record, you see that the Lord enters Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. And what happens in Matthew 21? The Lord goes and tells disciples to go and find the colt. And what does he do? The Lord hath need of them. And then you have in the verse Number four, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet saying, tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a coat the foal of an ass. Here we find Christ is fulfilling the promise of the coming king. And what happens in verse number nine? The multitudes went before and they followed, cried, saying, Hosanna. To the son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And if you've any doubt as to what's happening here, you turn over to verse number 15. For when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. They're concerned that the people are they're drawing a conclusion that this Jesus is indeed the promised coming king. And the Lord says to them, Yea, have ye never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? He confirms what the children were saying as they cried, Hosanna to the son of David. And so when you come to then contemplate the trial of Jesus Christ, and you go to Matthew 24 in the verse number 11, or sorry, Matthew 27, sorry, in the verse number 11, Matthew 27, the verse number 11, you see that what's a stick? And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. That interaction has given us some more, some more detail over in, in Mark's gospel. In the verse number 9, Pilate answered them, saying, Will you that I release unto you the king of the Jews? 
in the public dimension of Christ's trial and crucifixion. What is the God of heaven screaming in the ears of the Jewish people? This man says he's king. And you're going to put him to death as one who claims to be king. And so in the verse number 29 of Matthew 27, they plait a crown of thorns and they bow before him in mockery. But in their mockery, they're speaking truth. Heal, king of the Jews. And Pilate himself, he gives the order for the superscription above the cross. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. You can't, you can't miss the significance. When you read Matthew, and the Magi come, where is born the king of the Jews? And you get to the end of the gospel, and as the Messiah hangs upon the cross above the head, this is the king of the Jews. And we are being, we're being drawn in our minds by the gospel writer to understand that all of those predictions of the son of David coming, they're all fulfilled in this conquering king. He looks to all intents and purpose like a defeated king. But we all know that his death, his death was the battleground. Calvary was the place of victory. And as he dies, he dies in conquest and victory. And through death, he destroys him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And he makes a show of them openly. He triumphs over them in it, Colossians chapter 2. So we're seeing the kingdom, thy kingdom come, is a kingdom that is long promised in the coming of the Messiah. And the Messiah comes in the realm of history. And throughout the Gospels, time and time again, there are marker posts in the ground. This man is a king. And as he dies, we then hear the language of the epistles as they confirm the truth. Jesus Christ died as a conquering king. Hence the gospel is preached in the triumph and in the victory of Christ. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And the verse number 14 where it says, Now thanks be unto God which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savour of his knowledge by us in every place. For we unto God a sweet savour of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savour of death unto death and to the other the savour of life unto life. What's the imagery here? The imagery here is of the return of a conquering triumphant king. And so the king, he leaves his own land and he goes. And Christ leaves heaven and goes. And the king leaves his own land, but he returns as a conquering king. And he returns in triumphant procession. And as the conquering king, as would have been the pattern in those days, the conquering king marches down through the, 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 the city, the, the, the city they've left. He marches through the city and there is the release of perfumes and incense. And for those who are on the king's side, that perfume, that incense is a savour of life. But for those here against the king, that same perfume is a savour of death. And so we see 
When Paul says, now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ, we see that we triumph in the kingdom because we triumph in the train of the conquering king. These are the things that you must think about when you take the words upon your lips, thy kingdom come. You're talking about a real kingdom and a real king. You're talking about substantial doctrine that so then invigorates your praying for the kingdom that was conceived in the coming of Christ, the kingdom conquering as Christ conquers in the part of God, that king, of course, is then crowned. Our time is gone for tonight, by and large. But you think of Acts 2, Acts 13. And there we see that Christ ascends. In the power of endless life, he ascends to the throne of David. And he can say, all power has been given unto me. Go ye therefore. We triumph in Christ and Christ sends us out. As we seek to have ongoing battles in the final culmination of the kingdom. For we know that Christ said, There is yet a coming kingdom. And whilst the kingdom has come in the coming of Christ, he does say that he will drink the cup new with us in the Father's kingdom. And so we'll say more of that in the weeks to come. But you see, this kingdom that is, it is originated in the coming of the king. According to promise, this kingdom that is, it is realized as the king conquers. And it's a kingdom that is yet to be consummated. And that's why we pray after Calvary. And we still pray, thy kingdom come. Looking for the time when the king will return and defeat all enemies, even death itself. So, in the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, we are praying in the language of catechism that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed. And that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. We're praying for a kingdom to come in the virtue of a king who has already known victory over the enemy. What a prayer that is. Thy kingdom come, and you know the king has already achieved the victory. We're praying after the king is crowned. Hence, we're praying between victory and consummation. And that's what governs our prayers as we pray, Thy kingdom come. You realize you're talking about the kingdom of God's Christ. You're talking about the only king who has an everlasting kingdom. It takes your minds away from the realm of the political on this earth and to the reign of a king who is Lord of lords and King of kings. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified. Thank you.